Our text this morning comes from the book of Psalms, chapter 24, which was also our Old Testament reading just a little bit ago. So you can turn to the back of your order of worship and follow along. We will reread here in a minute, or you can open your own copy of God's Word. Before we do that, let me provide some brief introductory comments to our text this morning. You may not know, but Psalm 24 is a hymn of praise, but it also includes messianic elements as well. As a hymn of praise, it celebrates God's glory, the King of glory. From a messianic perspective, the psalm anticipates God's advent and his ascension. The liturgical form of Psalm 24 suggests a question and answer exchange between priests as they are exalting God and call out to one another and then answer one another. The content of 24 suggests psalms was utilized by priests or pilgrims as they processed toward Jerusalem and God's sanctuary to worship him during one of the holy feasts or utilized by priests as God himself represented by the Ark of the Covenant, processed toward Jerusalem and the sanctuary after returning from a victorious campaign with the army. However, regardless of whether Psalm 24 commemorates processional activity during a feast or before a feast, a processional activity after a battle, the truth of the matter is that only the person who has clean hands and a pure heart may ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place. So the question that the writer poses and that we wonder about is who exactly is this person? Please listen as I read Psalm 24. Hear the word of God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Indeed, let us now pray to the King of glory. Father, we come before you because you are worthy of all adulation, exaltation, and praise. You are the true King of glory. We ask that you would condescend to us, that we would feel your presence, that you would speak to us by your word through the power of the Holy Spirit, that, Lord, that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers of well. And we pray all these things In Jesus Christ's name, amen. I've hiked a lot of hills, and I've climbed up a lot of mountains when I started backpacking almost 30 years ago. 
Some peaks have exceeded 10,000 feet in elevation, and some ranges have stretched on for miles and miles. On some trips, my total elevation exceeded tens of thousands of feet on a long weekend. On other trips, I averaged 25 miles per day for weeks on end. However, probably one of the hardest, and in hindsight, one of the dumbest hikes that I ever did, was up a mountain plateau called Masada. While visually impressive, Masada itself, as far from, as mountains go, isn't that high. In fact, it stands only 1,300 feet in elevation. And the trail I hiked, well, it included only 980 feet of that total, stretching over a measly one and a half miles. All in all, a relatively short and easy hike, doable within 45 minutes to an hour and a half, according to the guidebook that I used. So compared to other hikes, this was a nothing hike. And compared to other hikers, I was way above average. I mean, what, what could go wrong? Well, a lot went wrong the day I hiked that trail many years ago in 1996. You see, I quickly learned that this was no ordinary mountain and trail. No, this was Masada, and the trail was called the Snake Path. And in case you are wondering, this mountain and its trail are located in Israel, on the edge of the Judean desert, and within the Dead Sea Basin. Now, I'm not sure what was dumber, thinking I could hike this trail with no problem at all, or thinking I could hike this trail with no problems at all during the summer, in the afternoon with a 50-pound backpack on, with very little water, no food, and at the lowest place on Earth. As I quickly learned, the Dead Sea Basin is pretty hot, especially in July at 2 p.m. when I started this hike. So it shouldn't surprise you that I ended up severely dehydrated, lightheaded, nauseated, dizzy, sunburnt, and close to passing out several times. On the top of that, the trail itself, despite being called the snake path, it didn't provide many switchbacks at all. On the contrary, it was more or less straight up. And not only was the incline horrendous, but with every step, step I took, I would often slide backwards. By the time I reached the top, I was totally exhausted and feeling unwell. Instead of taking 45 plus minutes, according to the guidebook, it took me several hours to summit. And this left me with very little time to see the ancient archaeological ruins on the top of this plateau that King Herod had built. To add insult to injury, my friends were already ready to go by the time that I got up to the top. You see, what I haven't mentioned until this very moment is I didn't even need to hike this trail. In fact, there was a wonderfully fast, air-conditioned aerial tram car that ferried people up to the top every 15 minutes. The ride only took three minutes, but I wanted to prove to myself that I could do it. After all, this was the same trail that the Israeli military used to run recruits up and then swear them in before service. Despite completing it, my pride and arrogance had cost me physically, as well as a chance to see many of the ruins. Needless to say, I used the aerial tram car on the way down and every subsequent visit to Masada, that's what I take. <laughs> However, not only was this hike difficult, but it was also embarrassing and humiliating. You see, I completely misjudged my physical abilities and experience, 
as well as misjudge the physical context and environment of this hike. Though I completed it, I definitely didn't have any business hiking that mountain, at least not in the manner that I attempted it that July afternoon. Brothers and sisters, our lives often reflect the kind of journey I had while trying to hike Masada. We misjudge our spiritual abilities, experience, and knowledge. We misjudge our salvific contribution and roles we play in our own spiritual growth. We often take too much credit. We often take too much upon ourselves, and we often try to force our way up the mountain to God. But as we see in our text this morning in Psalm 24, it is the Lord who is the source of our life. It is the Lord who is the source of our salvation. You see, the Lord is the only one able to ascend victoriously to his sanctuary. Why is this? Because it is the Lord alone who is our creator king. It is the Lord alone who is our holy king. And it is the Lord alone who is our warrior king. So if you find yourself wondering about your own life and how you're going to get to God, well, my friends, I have good news for you this morning. But what's our starting point, Jeff? Where do we begin? Well, I have three points I want to share with you this morning, three gospel truths I want to communicate. And the first point is this. The Lord ascends victoriously to his sanctuary on our behalf because he is our creator king. Look back at the opening verses of chapter 24 in Psalms. They read, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The opening verses of our text rightly focus on God's creative power. Certainly any being capable of fashioning the world from nothing is worthy of such adoration during a religious procession. And if all we focused on today was the Lord's transcendence, that alone would be reason enough to explain why he is the only one able to ascend victoriously to his sanctuary. However, the emphasis on God's activity and power in verses 1 and 2 are just as much about his eminence as his transcendence. The fact that the earth is the Lord's expresses the idea of belonging, and that there is a relational connection between the creator and the created. And this relational connection is not just reflected between the Lord and inanimate objects, but between the Lord and animate objects, between animals, between us. This is what is meant by the fullness thereof and those who dwell therein. You see, everything that the Lord has created belongs to him. He is the owner of it all, including you and I and a cattle on a thousand hill. And because everything belongs to the Lord, he is still involved with it. He deeply cares for it. He passionately loves it. And the founding, the establishing of the earth, only further expresses the Lord sustaining a power upon and commitment to creation, particularly for those who dwell in it, for his people. You see, the Lord, he, he condescends to us, this is the reality first witnessed in Christ's nativity, second in his ministry, and finally through his death and resurrection. We don't ascend to the Lord. He comes to us. The Lord is our creator king. 
once you come to understand this reality, it's very liberating. By submitting to the lordship of Jesus, the creator-creature relationship that was damaged in the garden, it's restored. And this is, it's tremendous news, beloved. Unlike the religions of men which focus on our journey, our commitments, our story, our devotion, our works, our performance, and our spiritual attempts to reach God, the gospel turns that all upside down and puts the onus of salvation and sanctification on the Lord. Our dependence, it's upon the Lord, not what we can do for ourselves and not what we can do for him. We need the Lord to act on our behalf. We need the Lord to intercede for us. We need the Lord to preserve, to sustain, and to save us. We cannot do it. We can't. And why is that? Because we are not the creator, but the creature. And because we are not holy in and of ourselves. Which leads us to our second point, And that's this. The Lord ascends victoriously to his sanctuary on our behalf because he is our holy king. Look again at the next verse, verse 3. The psalmist writes, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? After praising the Lord for his splendor, for his majesty as our creator, the psalmist focuses on the liturgical dialogue between two priests. The first priest is crying out two parallel questions. And these two questions fit well with the context and flow of the praise just offered. Since the Lord is the creator, since he is the standard of the earth and those who dwell therein, who would actually have the right Who would actually have the boldness? Who would actually have the audacity to ascend the Lord's hill and to stand in his sanctuary? Of course, this isn't the first time within Israel's history that this question has been asked. The scriptures are replete with examples of God's and Israel's interaction together in sacred settings. Most notably, Moses and the Israelites faced these very questions upon their arrival at Mount Sinai after the exodus from Egypt. And great pains, if you don't recall, were taken to exclude the people from encroaching upon the mountain. If they did, whether purposely or even accidentally, they were struck down. In Exodus 19, in verses 20 through 24, we read the following. Moses says this, about his interaction with the Lord. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. Not only were the people and priests barred, but even Moses himself, the great prophet of Israel, had restrictions. In fact, Moses' ascension up Mount Sinai was at the request, the behest of God. He never ascended it of his own free will. And there were always specific instructions for him on how to properly engage with the Lord. 
And so we ask this question, why? Why was this the case? Well, because the hill of the Lord and his sanctuary were sacrosanct. They were holy places. And they were holy because God himself is holy. Wherever God's presence resides, there his holiness resides as well. And God is so holy that according to Habakkuk, he cannot even look at evil. Now you're probably thinking, well, Jeff, if that's true, then why was this psalm utilized in a processional context where sinful worshipers entered into the city and into God's holy place? Well, first, the presence of sin does not mean we are absolved from worshiping the Lord. On the contrary, our sin is a reminder of our dependence upon and need for him. The problem is not whether we are supposed to worship God, but whether our worship will be found acceptable. Second, the Lord made provisions for Israel which allowed them to address their sinfulness so that they could worship. This was the whole purpose of the Old Testament sacrificial system as well as the laws pertaining to cleanliness and purity in the book of Leviticus. This is why in this liturgical dialogue, the second priest responds to the first priest's questions by stating this, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. For those seeking to ascend the hill of the Lord and to stand in his holy place, there were entry requirements into the temple precincts. Remember, the Lord's sanctuary was not open public space. No, the Lord's sanctuary was closed, sacred space, and the Levites were charged with protecting it from violation. To have clean hands, to have a pure heart, means that worshipers who wish to ascend Mount Zion, which is where the tabernacle or temple stood, must be innocent both externally and internally. And this, this innocence that this text is talking about refers both to a person's actions and their thinking, which would even include things such as desires, emotions, and motives. Further clarification of this external and internal purity continues in the latter half of verse 4. You see, the person who is externally and internally pure does not lift up his soul to what is false, nor swear deceitfully by it. While the context is referring to the sin of false worship and idolatry, the greatest reality is that this purity is speaking about one thing, total allegiance to the Lord. So while the psalmist could have listed countless sins and transgressions of which the Old Testament sacrificial system and purity laws could have dressed externally, he chose to highlight the source from which all sins and transgressions flow out of, a person's divided heart. This is what the Lord Jesus meant when he said in Matthew chapter 6, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Or when the Lord Jesus responded to the Pharisees and their traditional teachings, he quoted Isaiah 29 within Matthew 15, and then he expounded upon it by saying this, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. For what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles or person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. 
These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Despite laws governing Israel's cleanliness and purity, and despite receiving five different types of sacrificial offerings to atone for their transgressions and sins, the old covenant was limited. And it was limited because it was temporary in nature and could not change the people's hearts. Unfortunately, my friends, we also have divided hearts. This was not just an ancient Israelite problem. This is our problem as well. And our internal purity, our divided hearts, they cannot be ignored, it cannot be minimized, and it cannot be fixed by any means that we can humanly conceive of. That means there is no amount of self-improvement that we can do, no amends that we can make, no amount of work that we can undertake to solve our spiritual and salvific dilemma. The reality is, is we can never have the type of purity to require, require to ascend the hill of the Lord and to stand in his holy place apart from God's own gracious and merciful mediation on our behalf. This is why this psalm, while speaking about worship in the time of ancient Israel, it's also messianic in nature. It is anticipatory. It is futuristic. The psalm, this psalm looks forward to a pilgrim, to a worshiper, to a priest who does have clean hands, who does have a pure heart, who is fully devoted, fully loyal, and fully faithful to God, to a person who does not lift up his soul to what is false. And who exactly is this person? Who are the priests talking about? Who is the psalmist actually writing about? It's no secret, my friends, who this person is. He is our creator king, our holy king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And because Jesus Christ is our holy king, because he is clean and pure and has an undivided heart, his sacrifice on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, makes it possible for us to have a right relationship with God in order that through him we may victoriously ascend to the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place totally unblemished by Jesus Christ himself. Where the ministry of the Levitical priests was ineffective, where the old covenant was powerless to change hearts, the new covenant is not. The writer in Hebrews says this in chapter 10, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. My friends, if you are in Christ, if you are one of his followers, you are being sanctified right now. The Lord Jesus, who is your holy king, who has risen from the dead, who has ascended to heaven, who sits at the right hand of God, is now and always making intercession for you. Your way to God is not to ascend the mountain by your own strength or by your own righteousness, but by laying claim to the righteousness of Christ Jesus, who is freely offered to you. You see, our holy king, Jesus Christ, has defeated sin and death and conquered all his and our enemies. 
Our holy King Jesus Christ has been victorious on our behalf. Believe it. Accept it. Rest in it. Which leads us to our third and final point. And that's this. The Lord ascends victoriously to his sanctuary on our behalf because he is our warrior king. Look again at verse 7 and then take note of the repetition in verse 9. They read, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Though the gates and doors of the city and sanctuary in ancient Israel actually swung to the side and did not raise up like in a medieval castle setting, the idiom of lifting up one's head, it denotes joy and celebration within scripture. And this joy and celebration, it's not just general praise, but it's joy and celebration tied to warfare and specifically to military success in battle. The most likely picture is that the army, led by God and represented by the Ark of the Covenant, processed toward Jerusalem and the sanctuary after returning from a victorious campaign against one of Israel's enemies. And the question and answer exchange between the priests in 7 and 9 and then verses 8 and 10, they were meant to heighten the praise, to exalt the victor more than even providing identification. They know who the king of glory is. But in case the identification of this ascending victor was unclear, additional laud and honor and titles are given. The title Lord of Hosts refers specifically to God and his command over earthly and heavenly armies, as well as the stars and the constellations. So make no mistake, the king of glory is not one of Israel's human rulers, but the Lord himself. In Exodus 15, it says, the Lord is called a man of war. And in 2 Chronicles 20, the Lord says to Judah and then King Jehoshaphat before battle, he says, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's and God's alone. You see, the Lord was Israel's warrior king. And my friends, that is exactly who the Lord Jesus is for us as well. Jesus is our warrior king who fights our battles and destroys our enemies, who ascends victoriously to his sanctuary on our behalf in order to advocate to intercede and to pray for us at all times. You see, Psalm 24 is a picture of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem where he defeats all his and our enemies on Palm Sunday. It is a picture of Jesus' victory over sin at the cross on Good Friday. It is a picture of Jesus' defeat of death with his resurrection on Easter. And it is a picture of Jesus' ascension to his heavenly sanctuary where he now sits at the right hand of God and continually makes intercession for us. My friends, today on this Ascension Sunday, look to the risen and glorified Christ for salvation, the one who alone is our creator king, the one who alone is our holy king, and the one who alone is our warrior king. Jesus is your path to God and the only way to ascend the hill of the Lord and to sit at his holy place with clean hands and a pure heart because as our high priest he has already done it for us. And that, my friends, is the glorious grace of the gospel. Let us bow our heads for prayer. Lord, we come before you because you are 
our creator. You are holy and you fight for us. And we thank you, Lord, that you love us deeply, that you came to this earth, that you condescended to meet our needs, to heal us, to forgive us, to make us right with you and the Father. And we thank you now, Lord, that you are ascended to heavenly places and are still interceding for us, sanctifying us. And Lord, we look to the day when we will be reunited with you and glorified. We ask all these things that you would work in our hearts. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.